Let's open once again to Ecclesiastes. The Lord has been taking us through this wonderful book and showing us so many truths. We all need more wisdom. We all need to learn from the saints of the past, including King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. And he's been taking us through in Ecclesiastes the things that he has learned. A difficult book, a book that sometimes challenges us to really work at interpretation. We can't just lightly read Ecclesiastes. We can't just open a commentary because there's a hundred different views on what Ecclesiastes is truly talking about. It's a book you have to study. It's a book you have to work at. It's a book you have to really think about how it fits with the rest of Scripture. And so today I want you to turn to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and let's look at 12 through 17. Whenever it says vanity or futility, I'm going to say hevel because that's the Hebrew word. I don't like the English translations of it, so I just translate it literally. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly. Or more literally, there is an advantage of wisdom over folly, as light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is Hevel. But there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is Hevel and striving after wind. Now you'll recall, if you were here, at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, the author here tells us who he is. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, Koheleth, the one who wants to bring a message, the one who's inspired by God to write this message and teach it to the young men and to all who would later read it. But he says he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's only one man who ever fit that, that is Solomon. And he gave us his main theme to start there, your translation, and, and one, two says, vanity of vanities, hevel of hevelim. It's just a mist, a vapor. He says, all is just a vapor. And then he says, I want to tell you about my story. I want to tell you how I went through life looking for the answer. Here's the question, he said. Chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Under the sun, life upon the earth. What's the point of all that we do? What's the point of our work? Our work at our job, our work as a parent, our work in the marriage that we put effort into, our work in coming to church, you might even say, our hobbies, the things that we love, learning, reading, growing, 
What is the point? And he's going to now go through different parts of life trying to figure out if there is a point to anything that we do. Not just is there a point to eating. We know there's a point to eating, right? Not, is there a point to talking with people? Of course, all things have some value as long as they're not sinful. But what's the ultimate advantage? What's left over when we die? What's the surplus? What's the net gain? Is this worth my time to invest in? Is what he's asking. Is this worth putting hours of my life into? Years of my life into? And so Solomon, of course, is, is living in sin. He's been pulled away by his many wives. And so he begins to recount this starting in verse 4 of chapter 1. And he says he's going to look in various places. He's going to look in creation in the natural world first. But there's no answer there because things just continue on. We're here one day and gone, but the world continues on like we never existed. He says, that doesn't have the answer. That just frustrates me to look there. Well, how about human history? Certainly, if you look at all the things that have been built and all the people that have come before us, though the answer will be there. But he says, there's nothing new under the sun. People come, they die, they go, they're forgotten. The things they built are forgotten. There's nothing new. And even when you think there's something new, it's been done before. There's no new categories being invented of things. Just improvements upon old things, but nothing new. So then he assesses in uh, the end of chapter 1 there, wisdom. And he starts to say, look, I went after human wisdom. And I studied what we might call science. I studied knowledge. What have humans learned? Maybe the answer's there. And no, the answer's not there. It's just a mist. It's a vapor. All that man has learned really doesn't amount to a whole lot. And he says, maybe I'll study wisdom for itself. At the end of chapter 1, he looks at wisdom itself. Philosophy, you might say. Human philosophy. All that's been learned. Send me the scrolls. Send me the books. Let me study up on it. Let me get my PhD on it. Well, that's frustrating. That just leads to much grief. Look at the end of chapter 1. Because in much wisdom, there's much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. The more you know... The more you understand, the more you realize death is coming, the more you realize what sin is and how sin affects the world and how God has set it up this way and things are crooked and we can't straighten them. And it just makes a person like Solomon upset. Why? Because he's running from God, because he's searching for things in the wrong places, because he's trying to idolize other things. And he continues to get frustrated. So he said, well, I know what I'll do. In chapter 2, he says, I went and I set myself to test pleasure. That must be the answer. If you study the world and you study science and you study human history and you study philosophy, well, maybe the party lifestyle is where it's at. So I'll test pleasure. He tried alcohol. And he said, I would let my body be led by alcohol. That's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He said, I'll try real estate. I'll buy up some property. I'll buy some businesses. I'll build some homes. I'll build three homes in the Dominion. I'll build a huge ranch estate in West Texas. I'll have some pools. I'll have a mountain home, a lake home. I'll have all these great and wonderful things to throw the parties at. But that doesn't last either, he says. Well, I'll try money, possessions, all the animals in the ancient world that you could have to feed 30,000 people a day. And $666 billion per year in income. 
Certainly, if any man can be happy, that's enough, right? I mean, that's got to be the ultimate. $600 billion a year, we calculated, was his annual gold revenue, not including the livestock and animals that he had. And you know what he said at the end of that? Look at 2.11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done. All these things he had done to give himself pleasure. And the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was heaven. A mist, a vapor, and striving after wind. It's like trying to herd cats. It's like trying to catch the wind in your hand. There was nothing left over that I could really say this was worth it. He's not saying having real estate is sinful. He's not saying drinking is sinful. But he idolized those things. He looked at his possessions. He looked at his party lifestyle. And he was looking to see if this was the ultimate answer in life. Is this a thing I can really sink my teeth into and do the rest of my life and it really matters? And he says it's like striving after wind and there's no literally advantage. That's a key word in this book. So we want to translate it the same all the way through. In 2.11 there it says there's no prophet or yitron in Hebrew advantage under the sun. Under the sun. We're not talking about what God has said at this point. It's just under the sun. From our perspective, if I'm going to go out and chase meaning in life and ignore the Bible, that's under the sun. So now, Solomon wants to return to wisdom. Because when we were covering wisdom, you should have thought, all of us should have thought, well, the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. So why is he giving it such a bad rap? Why is he saying there's no use in learning wisdom? Because we know this is a book of wisdom. Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom. Job has a lot to teach us about wisdom. Jesus has a lot to say about wisdom. The book of James in the New Testament has a lot to say about wisdom. So he wants to come back and sort of give a final ruling on it for us because he knows that question's there. And he wants to compare wisdom to folly. Now he said separately, they don't provide the ultimate advantage in life. They teach us nothing about eternity in a sense. They're not good for idolizing. They can't be our gods. But what if we compared the two? That's what he's doing in this passage here today. Let's talk once more about wisdom, he says. But let's wrap it all up for you. Because next time, Lord willing, he's going to finish all of his personal experience out and tell us what good there is for man under the sun. But in verses 12 through 17, let's just compare wisdom and folly. So first, the first point is the light of wisdom. Wisdom gives us light. There is light to be had. There is a benefit to wisdom. There must be, since it's proclaimed in this book as a good thing, and other books of the Bible. Ecclesiastes does not contradict the rest of the Bible. You need to just believe that and get that straight when you're reading this book. I'm amazed at how many people I read who say, Solomon doesn't have it figured out. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He contradicts the rest of the Bible. Well, they don't even believe it's Solomon. They'll say, Ecclesiastes contradicts Proverbs. Five commentaries I've read said that. He's not doing that. He's looking at life from a backwards perspective. He's at the end of his life. He's looking back and he's saying, okay, I said some things in Proverbs that when you're young and looking forward are very true and they're always true in life no matter what. But what happens when you elevate certain things too far? 
What happens when you chase things that are good and you make them your God? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. But there is light in wisdom, he said, obviously. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. The consider word here is a strong verb in Hebrew. That means that he wants to face the facts. I want to turn my full attention to it. I want to give you my final report. And he's going to look at it in depth and in breadth. And he's going to say, what does it do for us? And he lists three things. Really, there's just two sides here that he's comparing. But wisdom is, in the Bible, wisdom is the skill and ability to make the right choices or to practically live well in God's creation. And those go together. You make the right choices, you live well. You live well, you make the right choices. To live according to the way that God has designed things. Sometimes unbelievers can learn these things. Believers can learn these things. The Bible has a lot to say so that a believer can most use God's creation to God's glory. But that's wisdom. Remember that. We'll come back to it. Because sometimes people think, well, I'm not really involved in gaining wisdom. I don't work in that field. I don't study. No, it's practical living. Now, godly wisdom is practical living in a godly way, according to God's word. But here he's just saying wisdom in general. The wisdom of life. The wisdom of the world. Not, not sinful world, but just practical, everyday living that is in accordance with God's creation. Now, madness, that's living out a lifestyle of blindness. A lifestyle that disregards truth. A lifestyle that says, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me what's true. It's the postmodern lifestyle that we see today. Truth doesn't matter. Truth is what you want to make it. He uses the word madness. It's not going crazy, but it's so crazy when you see it in other people's lives that you might say, that person's crazy. They're living a crazy lifestyle. And then foolish, folly. It's doing the same type of foolish things that a, that a mad person would do. But uh, these are bad choices, never learning from mistakes, tripping over the same thing every single day. It would be as if you had a rock outside your front door and you walked outside every day and tripped over it and you never moved it and you never picked it up. And my kids, they never pick up their dirty clothes pile and they just trip over it every day. We have to tell them, pick that up. It's that kind of foolishness that's in view here. Doing the same dumb things every day and not learning from your mistakes. So really madness and folly are just two sides of the same coin. These are different ways that foolishness gets expressed in life. And Solomon says, you know what? Let's reconsider these. You know, maybe wisdom's the answer. Maybe foolishness is the answer. Let's compare them now. Let's put them head to head. Which way should we go? Which choice should we make? Are they both equally unimportant? Or does one have advantage over the other? And he poses this question here. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? It's important for me to consider this, he says. And you to consider it, the reader. Because what better can you do? Are you going to take all that I've done and try to do better than me? Do you have $666 billion a year? Learn from Solomon. He says, what's the next king going to do? I mean, Solomon's just one man. Surely his son will learn from his mistakes 
and do better, right? His son will read Ecclesiastes or listen to his father preaching it to the young men in the, in the palace. He'll learn from it, right? Maybe he'll be even wiser. We'll go to 1 Kings chapter 12. And 1 Kings really gives us the history of Solomon and his son. Maybe the one who comes after Solomon will do better. Start in verse 3. His son's name is Rehoboam. So Solomon dies and his son inherits the kingdom. And in verse 3, Then they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, this is the new king, saying, Your father, that's Solomon, your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. It took a lot to bring in all that money. It took a lot to raise all those animals and slaughter them and cook them. And they're saying, can you just ease up a bit? We don't really want another king that puts this kind of yoke on us. And we'll serve you. We won't cause you any problems. You're not like your father, Solomon. He was very wise, but we'll still serve you. So here's what he says. Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. He wants some time to think about it. Verse 6. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. That's his first mistake right there. You see, most people, and even Christians, don't get godly counsel. And then if they do, they don't listen. So many mistakes that I see Christians make, that Frank helps counsel people out of, that he sees Christians make, are from not getting godly counsel, or when they get it, not listening. And here's Rehoboam right here. He says, I'm not going to listen to these guys. These old guys don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to go listen to my friends who will tell me what I want to hear. So he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. Now the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. This all goes back to David's sin with Bathsheba and how the sword will never leave David's house. Well, the son is not going to do any better than his father. We're not going to do any better than Solomon. No one has done any better since Adam fell except Jesus Christ. And that's because he was the God-man. None of us are going to be any wiser than Solomon. So let's listen to what he has to teach us here. You don't need to repeat the experiment that Solomon went through. You don't need to spend your life seeking pleasure, seeking all these different idols in the world. He's already done it. Let's learn from him. Verse 13. 
back in uh, Ecclesiastes 2. I saw that wisdom excels folly. So there's his, his first conclusion about wisdom. That there's light there. I saw that it excels folly. Literally, this is a better translation. There exists an advantage, a yitron. There's that word again, yitron. An advantage to wisdom more than folly. Yitron points back to chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does a man have? What's the advantage? Finally, Solomon, you're answering the question. You're at least getting there. You're starting to answer it. You've told us what not to do, and you finally said that something has an advantage. There's a net gain to it. There's a benefit. There's a surplus. There is something there that's worthwhile. So he's finally giving us an answer. And he's saying, though, he's giving us a very qualified answer. Relatively, there's an advantage. There's a relative advantage when you compare wisdom to folly. Now, he'll have more to say on wisdom before we're out of this passage. But he's just saying, there is an advantage, but hold on, it's, it's relative because we're comparing it to folly. And he says, just like there's an advantage of light over darkness. Even though wisdom is not going to be the ultimate thing that we need to chase after, Solomon is saying, look, I have to admit, it's better to be wise than to live in darkness. It's better to have some wisdom than to stumble around in the dark. Who wants to stumble around in the dark? Have you ever been in one of these houses with little kids with Legos and you try to walk around in the dark? That's dangerous. That's deadly. You don't want to stumble around in the dark your whole life. Of course, having some knowledge and wisdom is a good thing and relatively profitable to folly. Look at Ecclesiastes 7.12. He's going to say this throughout the rest of the book here. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. Having some money protects you from starving. Having some money gives you shelter. It protects you from being exposed to the elements. Well, wisdom does too. But the advantage, there's that word again, advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Why? Because you don't make the same deadly mistakes that people often make when they're foolish. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. So it, it gives light. There's almost a, a type of light coming from a person when they are wise. Chapter 10, verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. I mean, this is just basic wisdom in life. You don't sharpen your axe. It's going to take you more hits to chop that piece of wood. And he goes on to say, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. You sharpen your mind, you sharpen your living, you sharpen how you practically and skillfully live in life, and it's going to go easier for you. Doesn't the whole Bible teach that? And he says in verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise person has eyes. He can see things. He can see the advantages to taking this road. If I make this choice in life, if I marry this person, if I take this job, if I join this church, I can see the advantages. And he also has eyes to see the disadvantages, to see the pitfalls, to see the inconveniences in life. If I take this job, I'll feel really important, but it doesn't pay very well. 
If I move here, that would be great to live there, but there's not a seriously good church within two hours drive, and that's going to affect my family. A wise person can look at life, and they can say, this might happen, and that might happen. I need to be careful. I need to think wisely. I need to get advice. I need to ask other people. They have eyes in their head. But a foolish person walks around as if they have no eyes. Stumble over this, stumble over that. If you're a parent, you've seen your kids do foolish things, and it hurts you. But even if you're not a parent, you've seen other people do foolish things. And you're just thinking, how could they do that? And you forget that you once did foolish things as well, and probably still do. But in general, he says the person who seeks wisdom and applies it in their life, they have eyes in their head. They can see where they're going. They don't fall in that hole that's right there. They don't stumble over that huge boulder that's right there. They know how to live a wise life. Go to Proverbs. Proverbs 22, also written by Solomon. And uh, this is a proverb that matches almost what he's saying here. Proverbs 22, 3. Proverbs puts it more in the realm of good and evil, which it applies as well. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. So evil's coming. I'm getting out of the way. But the naive, they go on and they're punished for it. They suffer for it. They're foolish. They think, you know what? It's not going to affect me. I can hang out with those people. It's not going to rub off on me. You know, the Bible might say that evil company corrupts us. Not me. I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to watch that thing. I'm strong enough to do that thing, to move to that place, to make that foolish decision. But I'll be okay. No, he says it doesn't work like that. Have eyes in your head. Have wisdom. It gives light. Wisdom helps us come up with the right answers in life. It helps us study the Bible. It helps us study anything that we have to study to be successful. Whether it's your job, whether it's at home. Don't think, you know, this wisdom stuff, that's for college students. That's for uh, people who sit around and have nothing better to do than think. What is wisdom in the Bible? Practical living, making right choices. Does anybody else make right choices, hopefully, in their life? Is it just people who sit around and have nothing else to do but gaze at their navels? No, we all have to make right decisions, don't we? We all have to think about how to practically live and how to improve in those things. You have too many Christians today who just say, I don't care about wisdom. I'm going to live foolishly. Well, you know, you have wisdom and apply it, hopefully, in your parenting and your marriage and your job and how you handle money and how you handle thinking about retirement. Is that a godly way of thinking about it or not? And are you having wisdom there? What church you should be a part of? What friends you should have? But many Christians just go through life like those things don't matter. They don't care about wisdom. You know, they'll just bumble along, go wherever, do whatever somebody else tells them to do, what feels good, what feels right. I'll end up in the church with laser lights, smoke. doesn't matter as long as I feel good. All that matters is that you're happy, right? That's what matters to God. We talked about that when we looked at pleasure, didn't we? That's not the way to think about life. Solomon says, have wisdom. God says, have wisdom. Make good, skillful choices, decisions, and work at being better at those things. Don't tell your wife you can't change. Wife, don't tell your husband, it's just the way God made me. You know, I can't grow. Don't think, parents, that your kids are just that way. There's nothing you can do. You know, it's too late now. There's always 
something we could do to get better at living in God's world. We can grow and always get godly counsel for big decisions. I've already hit on that. I've seen it so many times. People make huge decisions in life that will affect their marriage, their family, their spiritual walk, and they don't get any godly help in making that decision. Wisdom has an advantage over folly. It gives us light. There's a benefit to it. The commentator Michael Eaton wrote a great little commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says, this person who doesn't have eyes in his head, he has no light, no light from God, no eyes in himself. And Eaton says this man prefigures the New Testament sinner who loves the darkness, John 3.19, and is darkness, Ephesians 5.8. When you don't have eyes in your head, you stumble into sin. You stumble into your heart's desire. If you need wisdom, then ask for it. Ask for it, believer. In James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let himself ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You need wisdom in your work? Should I keep working there or not? Is this an ungodly? Should I get better, take this certification, do this thing? Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. There's no reason for a believer to bumble and stumble through life. There's just no reason. We have God, we have his book, and we have the church. I mean, when we make a dumb decision, we have really gone and worked hard at making a dumb decision. When we have all of those things that God has given us. He doesn't end on that high note. Before we're done with verse 14, look what he says. And yet I know that one fate, I don't really like the word fate, befalls them both. One chance. Chance is a little better. He's not talking about the fate of the gods. He's not saying, this is your fate, just deal with it. It's the idea of something happening. God's providence. Same word is used in Ruth 2. When Ruth just happens to come to Boaz's field. Over and over in the Old Testament, things just happen to happen. And that's a little uh, code phrase telling us that God's providence is behind it. And Solomon's saying, look, whether you're wise or you're foolish, the same thing happens to everyone. What is that? Well, he'll eventually tell us, but it's death. The same thing happens to everyone. So don't elevate wisdom too highly. That's going to be the next thing that we look at. But he's already giving us a hint here. Look, I looked at wisdom, I looked at folly, and wisdom does have some advantage. But you know what? The foolish person and the wise person, they both die. It's not as if wisdom helps you continue living a longer and longer and longer life, or you'll always be remembered by people forever. Death is the great equalizer. It comes to all. The wise person might live longer. They might make better decisions. You foolishly consume drugs and alcohol, smoke your whole life. You're going to die sooner on average. Make wise choices, you'll live longer. But eventually we all die. So that brings us to number two, the weakness of wisdom. There is a weakness. It gives us an advantage, but there's a weakness to wisdom that he goes into in the last few verses here. Verse 15, then I said to myself, and again, it's to my heart. I said to my heart, as is the fate or the thing that happens to the fool, it will also befall me. A wisdom under the sun is not going to give you an advantage after this life. You can work at being as skilled as you want in your job and keeping your house immaculate and being the best cook ever. 
No advantage in the afterlife. No advantage to those things. So be careful how much you put into it. Death is going to take any advantage you have in this life away. So he asked the question, here it is, why then have I been extremely or excessively wise? So I said to my heart, this is Hevel. This is a mist. This is a vapor. This is fleeting. Yes, you have an advantage, but there's a great weakness if you elevate it too much. Just like anything in life that's good, you put it on a pedestal and you work at it and you, you excessively try to work and getting better and better and better at it. And what happens? It's gone because you die. It's like life. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's hevel. That word means literally breath. It's temporary. It's insubstantial, ephemeral, not permanent. He's already told us at the beginning of the book, all of life under the sun is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here one day. It's gone the next. So he's saying, be careful what you put your time into. It's a puff of smoke. It's gone tomorrow. Careful where your energy and your focus and your time is spent. Because he says, I loved wisdom. I made myself extremely wise. Remember, God gave him wisdom, but he also grew over time, right? And he sought more and more things. See, the wise want to be wiser. It's not necessarily bad. But extremely wise? Why have I devoted myself to that? What's the point if all of it's going to go away at death? I'll just be equal to the foolish person in the grave. From a worldly perspective, we're just equal. We go to the grave. Can't take it with you when you're gone. Can't take your possessions with you. Can't take your wisdom with you. What good is it going to do me there? Wisdom's better than folly. Yeah. But, but don't over-acquire wisdom. Don't overly focus on it. It's a waste of your time. And you say, well, pastor, it's a good thing because I don't ever try to be wise. This is a good thing. Now, remember, wisdom has an advantage. You don't want to keep stumbling through life. You don't want to keep stumbling through life. Well, pastor, I don't sit around and just contemplate philosophy, so I don't have to worry about what he's saying here. You don't? Remember, wisdom is making good decisions, and wisdom is making skillful, practical, living choices and actions in your life. So it's very common for us to want to excel at some of these things. Why wouldn't you want to be more and more practical and make good decisions in your life? Why wouldn't you want to get better at your job, at work? Grow your business. Get a, a, a raise. Don't we all want to glorify God in doing a good job, whether we work for ourselves or for our employers? That's a good thing. But you can obsess over that. You can become a workaholic. You can chase every extra credential and award and every raise that's offered and say, you know what? I'm going to be the best at my work. And you obsess over that. That becomes your idol. You've raised it up. And you're just like Solomon. Why have I become excessively wise? Well, I, I don't work moms. You say, I'm, I'm just a mom, a wife. Well, you know, there's super moms out there, right? I'm going to be a super mom. I'm going to be the best mom ever. I'm going to give my kids everything they want. Five different options for breakfast. I'm going to give them the best education they've ever had. I'm going to obsess over that. 
I'm going to make sure they don't ever get hurt. They never have a scrape. The neighbors never hear my kids yell. They're the most perfect kids in the world. Dad, you can do this too, right? I'm going to be at every sporting event. Man, Monday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, doesn't matter. I'm going to that soccer game. I'm going to be the best dad ever. Forget my wife. I'm going to be with my kids all the time. It can happen in parenting. It can happen in marriage. I'm going to be the best husband and wife ever for my spouse. I'm going to obsess over that. My wife is never going to have any lack of anything. She's going to have everything. I'm going to take her everywhere. I'm going to go into debt so we can just go on the best vacations ever. What did I just do? Idolize my spouse. See, I can take my focus off of God. I can take my focus off of sanctification and put it on something that is good. Parenting, job, marriage. But if that's what I do excessively, I just made an idol of it. Well, you know, pastor, I don't have kids. I'm not married. Sometimes I work. But maybe you want to be the best friend that anybody's ever had. Sometimes people idolize friends and friendships. I'm going to be the best friend. I'm going to be everybody's best friend. Always there for them. Listening to every word they have to say. Always caring for them. That's good. But you can't do that for everyone. And sometimes we care so much about our friends and friendships that we would never tell a friend something they don't want to hear. And we become people pleasers. Oh, you need this? I'll give you that. You need this? I'll give it to you. People pleasers. Doing whatever our friends want. Maybe it's your hobby. You're going to be excellent at your hobby. Maybe it's your big retirement dream. Maybe it's your finances. You know, you pride yourself. I'm going to squeeze every penny out of this budget. And my kids might not even get a Christmas present. Because I care so much about managing this money that God has given me. And we can't go anywhere. And we can't have any fun. And we are going to make sure that every penny counts no matter what. And you just said, you know what? I'm going to be excessively wise at finances to the extent of what? Neglecting the other things that God has given you responsibility over. You can idolize anything in your life, even the good stuff. If we learned anything from Frank's sermon last week, we can idolize anything. Our hearts are our idol factories, Calvin said. And really, we could say all of chapter 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes is watch out for these idols. Watch out for these idols. Watch out for these idols because I chased them and they did not satisfy. But Solomon's not just giving up. You know, he asks the right question. By asking the question, he's implying that there is something else you should be spending your time and energy doing. See, the key word there is extremely or excessively. Wisdom's great, but, but excelling at it, it's not the answer. There are things you should be excelling at, though. There is one thing in particular the Bible says you should excel at. That you should sink all your time into, all your efforts into. Because it will never leave you unsatisfied. It will never leave you lacking. And that's the fear of the Lord. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about fear of the Lord at the end of Ecclesiastes. But you can't really preach a section of it without pointing to the end of the book. The fear of the Lord. Before we go to the end, go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, verse 10. And this is one of those passages on the fear of the Lord that we don't often look at. There's a lot of them in the Bible. 
I'm reading a great book on this called Rejoice and Tremble. We have it in the bookstore, and it's, uh, it really just looks at the fear of the Lord in Scripture. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, that's a type of wisdom that you'll never get to the bottom of, but you should spend your whole life learning about. It won't disappoint. It won't be heaven, a mist or a vapor. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. What should we be excessive about? Fearing the Lord. How do we do that? Learning from the Word, praying to Him, obeying His commandments. But can't you be excessive at that? No, you really can't. You can be legalistic. You can take things beyond Scripture and come up with your own rules and tell other people what to do all the time. But you really can't excel at loving God more than is good. You can't reach the top of that. You fear the Lord. You love Him. Go to uh, Proverbs 1-7 now. You see, that's what's so great about God is that you can never know all that there is to know about God. You can never reach the end of learning and fearing and following God, loving God. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon's not just saying, look, human wisdom has an advantage, but godly wisdom is awesome. No, he's saying that the only kind of wisdom that you can put your whole life into, study your whole life, and have something left over when you go to see God in eternity is the fear of the Lord, because that's wisdom. Other things are important. The wisdom of the world, learning how to do better and better in life, that's important. But the fear of the Lord, that's true wisdom. Now go to the end of Ecclesiastes. He's going to spend 12 chapters just so we'll believe the last two verses. Because if you just read the last two verses, you say, oh, fear of the Lord. Yeah, got it. You got to go all the way through his life to get to the end of the book. So you say, now I understand. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God. Have an intense love for God, a wonder, an amazement, a respect, an awe. That's not even encompassing all that the fear of the Lord is, but that's some of the words that might help you. An intense love, an amazement at God, and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So when Solomon says, why was I excessively wise? Why did I seek to have all this wisdom and how to live successfully in this area, in this area, in this area? I should have just been fearing the Lord. That's what he's hinting at. He won't get there till the end of the book, but that's what he's hinting at. I, I should have just spent time with the Lord. Instead of wandering off in life, making an idol of everything that I thought was important. So back to our text, chapter 2, verse 16. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. What's left over after death? Under the sun there's really nothing. The wise man dies. The wise woman dies. Foolish man dies. Foolish woman dies. 
Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things, or earlier ones, talking about people here, really. Also of latter ones, which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I mentioned before that how far can you remember back in your family tree? If you didn't do genealogical research, how far can you go back? And if you can't remember your great-grandparents, were they wise? Did they make good decisions? What kind of bad decisions did they make? I mean, we know so little because we forget. It's the way of the world. It's all going to be forgotten. Psalm 49, verse 10. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Even the wisest people are forgotten. Well, yeah, somebody can look them up in a history book, but you don't generally know their names. We don't even know who built things like Stonehenge and other monuments around the world. They're still there, but you can't remember anything about the people. Death is taking it all away. Death is the great equalizer. And so you have to ask yourself, am I ready for death? Because yes, I should live wisely, but what happens when death comes? What happens after death? But Solomon is not there yet as he looks back in his life. Now at the end of his life and writes Ecclesiastes, he understands. At this point in his life, he's still searching. He knew the Lord, then he walked away from the Lord for a while. Verse 17, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous. Literally, the word is evil. It was evil to me. If you were here for the men's breakfast, you remember Scott yesterday kept mentioning the word evil. Evil can mean natural disaster. It can mean sin. But that God is over all things that happen. And he says, look, this is a great evil to me. How can this be? I work so hard, excessively working at being wise, living rightly, living wisely, getting better at all the things that I do in my government and my family and all these things. And it's nothing. It's hevel. So I hated life. Because everything is hevel and striving after wind. You think maybe that's what Adam and Eve felt like when they got kicked out of the garden? What's the point? We really messed up now, Eve. We had it all. We had it made. And now you ate that fruit and look what happened. And she looks at him and starts arguing and they start arguing. And their kids come along and argue and fight and sin. Look, he's saying he hates life. He's chased all these things. He's, he's looked for all these things and he's found nothing. It's depressing. There is depression. There is depression. When you chase something your whole life and you realize it's not worth it. And that's depressing. God has designed us to be that way. We should get down when we've chased an idol. That's the bad news, isn't it? Depression, because all we had was an idol of wisdom. In Solomon's case, a, an idol in the Old Testament sometimes is called a hevel, a breath. It's not real. It's gone. You reach for it, you think, oh, this is going to be it. When I die, I'm going to grab this thing and it's gone. Just like your life. Now, he's not contemplating suicide here. We don't need to go there. Suicide's a great sin. That's not what he's saying here. He's just saying, 
At that point in his life, what's the, what's the point of living? Why am I even here? Job talks about that, doesn't he? David talks about that in his sin. What's the point? Why am I here? I hated life. And I remember Solomon's backslidden at this point. He's saying things that believers normally and their sanctification wouldn't say. He's eventually restored. He's going to tell us his story. But he's just saying, look, at that point in my life, I was disgusted with myself. Chased all the wrong things for the wrong reasons and ended up nowhere. For what? Disgusting, he says. All that he's done, all that he's learned. Now we might finish out by just saying Solomon wouldn't realize until later that God had planned all of this and what God was leading him along to come to these conclusions. So first of all, that he would put it in the book, but more importantly, that he would repent. He thought there was no point in life, but God was bringing him to the end of himself. He thought he was so special. He had all this money, all this wisdom. You know, I'll just try my own thing for a while. Set aside God. And God said, fine, go ahead. Try it. See what happens. And he went through all of this and says, you know what? I hated life. Now he's right there. He's ready to hate his own way of doing things and turn to God. And the New Testament language, we might say he's not far from the kingdom of God. Even though I think he's already a believer in that sense. Jesus would often tell people, you're not far from the kingdom of God. When you hate all that you've tried to do and all that you've worked for, and then you turn to God. Let's finish by looking at Luke 14. Luke 14 and verse 25. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you say, man, this describes my life. And I feel like this. Well, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 25, now large crowds were going along with Jesus here. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, children and brothers and sisters. Now he's saying this comparatively, right? You're going to love Jesus so much that the world's going to think you hate your family. You left your family to follow Jesus. You must hate them. But look what else he says. And even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. You've got to hate your own life. What does he mean? Does he mean you've got to want to commit suicide? That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, you've got to hate all the things that you tried to do to make yourself important. All the things that you tried to do to earn your way to God. All the idols that you propped up in your life. You've got to hate that. You've got to say like Solomon, I was disgusted with life after all of that. All that drinking and partying collecting possessions, chasing wisdom, disgusting. I hated it. Jesus said, you got to hate your own life to be his disciple. That's the only way. You cannot be my disciple unless you look back on your life and say, you know, all that stuff is rubbish, Paul said. It goes in the dumpster. It meant nothing. It meant nothing. It was just me trying to earn something, trying to impress people. But let's continue on here with what Jesus says. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You got to crucify all that stuff. You got to get rid of it. You got to put yourself on the cross. You got to drag the cross through the street like Jesus did and walk. Not literally, but spiritually speaking here. That stuff is dead to you. You're following Christ now. Yeah, you still have a marriage. You still have children, but you're not idolizing those things. You love your wife more than Christ, then you don't love Christ. 
You love your parents more than Christ, and you don't love Christ. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You better count the cost of following Jesus. There is a cost. You've got to get rid. You've got to be done with. You've got to put aside your sinful past. Oh, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else will the other is still far away. He sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now, people didn't give away everything. That's not what he's saying. But you've got to be willing to. You've got to be willing to give it up. Some of them did have to give it up. Remember the rich young ruler? He said, give away all your possessions, follow me. Guy says, can't do it. Left. Solomon, it would have been give up all your possessions, give up all your wisdom, give up all of these things that you sought in your life. And eventually he did. He had to repent and come to the Lord. You've got to learn from this. Wisdom does have some advantage over being foolish. But don't prop it up. Don't prop up these idols in your life. Fear the Lord and follow him. If you want to be excessively wise, be excessively wise in this book. Amen. Lord, I thank you that we could learn this today, that we could seek wisdom. We want to follow Christ. We want to live for him. Let us put aside these idols, even the good things that you've given us in life and not prop them up. And Lord, if there's any sin that we're idolizing in our life, certainly let's put that to death. We don't want to go through all of these stumbling and bumblings that Solomon had to go through. Sometimes we do go through it, Lord. Sometimes that's your plan. But help us to fear you and to seek you all of our days. We pray this with the help of your spirit in the name of Christ. Amen.